The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So my mom was about this tall, with hair. I mean, she had big hair. A Mexican mom, I don't know of any other kind of mom. She was my, my mom. She'd make tortillas by hand, salsa every day. No one made food, Mexican food like my mom. When I think about her, when I was thinking about her this week, I was thinking about how resourceful she was. Obviously, like any one of us in the room, I didn't appreciate her when she was, you know, when I was living at home, because she would attempt to hold me accountable. I was a rascal in every way. But I remember now that she would clean homes. When me and my sisters were in school, my mom would go to different homes in the community and she would clean them. I remember, too, that there would be these large luxury vehicles that would pull up in front of our little home in Vista. There would be a a big bag of clothing that would be dropped off. And much of what I remember my mom, when she wasn't in the kitchen, she was ironing clothes in order to generate some income. I remember starting to become more of a teenager and adolescent, taking a trip out on the 76 from Vista as as though you were going to Palomar Mountain. And our car pulling over on the side of the road where it was wide, I wasn't sure why we were there. I kept complaining, thinking, this is just another way for them to embarrass me. You know, that's what their goal is in life. And my mom would have us go out, and there was this, in the springtime, the cactus. There would be new growth. And they would carefully cut the cactus off and collect it into a box. And I wouldn't think much more of it unless my friends asked me, what did you do? And I wouldn't tell them. I didn't want to be embarrassed. But at some point in time through the course of the week, I would be eating something and I would recognize that these little cubes that were tasty and the sauce that my mom had made with, you know, maybe some chicken or beef or pork. And I would yell out to the kitchen, hey, mom, what is this? She'd say, never mind. My sister would lean over and she would go, it's the cactus we picked last weekend. My mom would go, it's Nepales. I go, Nepales? What's that? She goes, don't worry about it. It has a lot of vitamins and it's good for you. One of the things my mom did, you see, my dad traveled a lot in his work. He was in construction and and again, I was a handful. I had three sisters and I, I... Never mind, but there was times where she would have her full, managing the home, my dad was gone, she took care of all the finances and all of our meals, and you know, I would disappear from time to time. And I remember that, especially when I was younger, she would, she would say, come here, mijo, mijo, that's what she called me, come here, mijo. She usually grabbed me by my ear and dragged me wherever she wanted to go. Even though she was short, she could reach my earlobe and she would pull it down. Matter of fact, if you look real hard, you got one earlobe that's a little longer than the other. She go, you see that van that's going, that's going through the uh, neighborhood? I go, yeah, mom, it goes through the neighborhood all the time. She goes, you know what they do? I go, no, what do they do? She goes, they pick up bad boys like you and they take them away. It was UPS van, okay? <laughs> So when I was pushing people's buttons, which I think I'm gifted at, 
She'd go over to the phone, and it was a landline, obviously, and she'd pick up the receiver, and she'd push down, but she'd pretend like she was dialing. And she would go, he's ready, come and pick him up. <laughs> and it would keep me good for about a day or two. She was resourceful. She worked hard. She never told me how far she went in school. She wanted me to try hard. She wanted me to be successful. We didn't have conversations like I have with my daughters. It's, as a matter of fact, there's a lot of mystery and unknown in my mother's background. Of all the things that I could tell you today, is she did the best that she could with what she had in raising her family, moms. The title of our Bible study tonight, I know it's real creative, it's called Hannah's Prayer. But it's more than that. This is poetry. This is a psalm. It's a hymn. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I don't know if you know this, but in the most ancient of Hebrew texts or scrolls, there's no division between 1 and 2 Samuel. It's all one. And if there's anything I want you to know here tonight from our time together, it's that breakthrough in prayer leads to worship. The breakthrough in prayer. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You pray and you pray and you pray and you pray. And the intensity of your prayer, it ebbs and it flows. And then comes the day, then comes the moment where there is the answer that you were hoping for. And my friends, the intent is that it would lead to us worshiping God. It's just not any prayer. It's for you, the prayer. The prayer that is woven into the depths of your heart when God answers prayer, when we receive breakthrough in prayer, it leads to worship. Church history reveals that the prayers of moms have impacted the world. It was the early church father, Augustine, who was prayed for by his mother, Monica. The greatest of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was prayed for by his mother, Eliza. And perhaps one of the greatest missionaries known to evangelical Christianity, Hudson Taylor was prayed for by his mother, Amelia. Think about this. Public ministry, that which we see, that which is before us, is sometimes the result of a mother's private intercession. But we don't know that part of the story. We don't hear that part of the story. But I can tell you tonight, God knows that part of the story for he has heard a mother's prayer. I believe that the story of redemption itself is woven through the lives of faithful mothers. Where do we begin? Tonight I want you to think about Sarah and Isaac. Stop and think about this mother and her faith that God would provide a son. Rebecca and Jacob, Joseph and Ruth, or Rachel and Joseph, Ruth and Obed, and Grandma Naomi, Elizabeth and her son John the Baptist, 
And as we gather tonight, even Mary, Jesus' mother, who the scriptures tell us her heart was pierced because she loved, listen, because she loved her son Jesus. Hannah's prayer that we're going to go through tonight is Hebrew poetry, but it is also, also worship. She, like Mary of Nazareth, praises God because his divine plan came through her zip code. It came through her home. It flowed through her heart. She had been mistreated by a family member. We'll talk about that in a little bit. She was misunderstood by her husband, and most of the wives in the room go, yep, that's pretty much the way it goes. But she was, listen, she was validated by God. Mistreated by family, misunderstood by her husband, but she was validated by God in the birth of her son, Samuel. It's important to know that Hannah made good on a promise that she had made to God prior to the receiving of her son. Her son, once weaned, would, was dropped off at the tabernacle, that is a, a, a mobile, portable temple. It's sort of like maybe some of you have a four-year-old thinking about dropping your, your little one off at the church for, um, for an indefinite period of time. Please don't do that. Hannah embraced what most resists. Listen to this. She speaks to us. She embraced what most of us resist. She understood that nothing is really ours. Everything belongs to God. Her obedience resulted in a prophet whose ministry would shape Israel's history and even beyond that would touch us today. Samuel would anoint David as king, from whose lineage came Messiah. She asked for a child, but God answered her in a way that she would never have imagined. So we're going to see three things about her prayer. We're going to break down these ten verses into, into three sections. First, we're going to look at Hannah's joy, which is in the Lord, verses 1 and 2. Then in verses 2 through 8, we're going to see Hannah's security, where her security originated in, where it came in, the Lord. And then lastly, in verses 9 and 10, Hannah's trust in the Lord. This Mother's Day, we hear the heart of a thankful mom. Join me in verses 1 and 2, again, Hannah's joy in the Lord, where we read, and Hannah prayed. She is a praying woman. We see that in chapter 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Verse 2 is critical to understand the context of all 10 verses. There is none like the Lord, for there is none besides you. She's speaking to God. For there is no rock like our God. There is no immovable rock like our God. You go to Israel today, and you're thinking of Pastor Daniel over there with Pastor John. And you come upon ruins. And because of the many wars and, and civilizations that have come and gone and earthquakes and, and, and all that's taken place, it's interesting when you come upon some ruins and what is left are these columns, these massive 
columns. If they're made out of marble, that means they were imported from Greece. But depending on the material, you can tell where they came from. And sometimes the the way they're designed and, and the way they're created tells you a little bit about that as well. But there's something about the columns that there is a strength. They supported beams. They supported a roof or a structure. Hannah says, the source of strength in my life is the Lord. In Luke chapter 1, Mary, after she's visited by an angel and receives revelation that she will bear the Messiah, imagine like 14, 15-year-old young woman, she worships God in what is oftentimes called the Magnificat. And if you read the words of Mary's response to such incredible news, you hear Hannah's prayer. She leans upon Hannah in all that she had been through. It's imperative as we read these words, verses 1 and 2, that you hear the words in a feminine voice. My house, for my mom to yell out across the house for me was one thing, but oh, dad. Dad's was a deep and, and, and a serious voice. Mom had a little bit. Remember, she called me mijo, so there was this tenderness to it. But I want you to hear a woman's voice. I also want you to hear a theological truth that has been filtered through personal experience. Hannah had come to know God through a long season of pain. And as we said, there's an element of the prophetic in her prayer, as we'll see in verses 9 and 10, specifically 10. For you see, her son Samuel will plant the seed of an eternal monarchy. One of Jesus' messianic titles is the son of David. Matter of fact, blind Bartimaeus, as Jesus was going by, would yell out, Jesus, son of David. Jesus, son of David, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me. There's a question as to when Hannah's prayer was offered. Some believe that it was prayed when she deposited her son at Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was. Others think that she prayed the prayer when Samuel was born. We don't know for sure. Her worship is personal, and it should be. Her worship, our worship, should be personal. We should know the God we're worshiping, the God we're singing to, the God we are praying to. We know him. And I think that some of you tonight, I think you know him better than you really think you do. She says here, my heart exalts. My heart exalts. My horn is exalted. My mouth derides my enemies. And lastly, I rejoice in your salvation. This isn't theory. It's a joyous response to the God who heard her prayer and, listen, and rescued her. And in time, she prayed again and again and again and again. He rescued her. How did she get here? How did she get to verses 1 and 2? In chapter 1, Hannah is at the tabernacle praying. Eli sees her there by the entrance of the tabernacle, and he sees that her lips are moving quickly. 
She see, he sees that her face is troubled because of her desire to have a son. But she's not saying anything. He can't hear anything. And so he comes to the conclusion that she's intoxicated, that she's drunk, and he rebukes her. But he's wrong. He's absolutely wrong. And I wonder if sometimes when we watch others, we come to conclusions without really knowing what's going on. We see what's happening outwardly, but we don't have understanding as to what's going on inwardly. Let me read to you from 1 Samuel 1.15. But Hannah answered, and she says, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled or shaken in my spirit. What you see is the outward flow of a storm that rages within me. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. The joy we see in verses 1 and 2 is the result of God answering her petition. And because of this, in your notes, you'll see that she... She is thankful, she is strengthened, she is vindicated, and she is confident. In verse 1, she's thankful. My heart exalts in the Lord. Another way of saying this is that Hannah praised God with all of her heart. What we saw previously in verse 1 of her being troubled and shaken and emotional and, and, and and not able to express verbally what was going on with it inside of her, now bursts forth in joy. Her presenting young Samuel to the Lord was an expression of her gratitude. We mentioned that. She had an open hand, even with what God gave her as a result of her prayer. Secondly, because of this, she was strengthened. My, hor my horn, she says, is exalted in the Lord. Horn is a metaphor for strength or power or might. As in the horn of an animal being where its power is realized. Her strength came from God. Thirdly, she was vindicated. Because of God's salvation, she experienced being exonerated. Listen to this before others. Bit of a stigma for her prior to having a son. You see, her husband Elkanah had two wives. One was fruitful and had many children, but Hannah had no children. And when she prayed to God, he is the one who vindicated her. He is the one who came to her defense and spoke up for her through the giving of a son. Hannah's story reminds us that one day the mockery of the wicked will be silenced. She says, my enemies, which likely refer, which refers to her rival, Paniah, her husband's other wife, who bullied her for being childless. God has, she is, she is thankful, 
in the Lord. She is strengthened in the Lord, and she is vindicated by the Lord. Lastly, verse 2, she is confident. Verse 2 says, For there is none besides you, or none can compare to you. Our God is matchless in his goodness. Hannah boldly declares that there is no rock like our rock. God alone protects us. In him only do we trust. This fact is foundational to her experience. This fact is foundational to the prayer, and it is foundational to you. Hold on to verse 2. In Romans 15, 13, Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy, peace, and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. As a youth pastor for 12 years, it seems like a long time ago. It was. It was from about 1987 to about 2000. And uh, from time to time, we, you know, during the summer months, either right before the time, right about now when school's wrapping up or right before school began in August, it seemed a little more traditional back then that the school year would go through June and then begin in September after Labor Day. This young man came into my youth group and he said, you know, we've been going to a church in La Mesa. I was staying with my mom down there, but because of our family's broken, so now I'm going to spend some time here in Fallbrook with my father. And he says, I want you to pray for me. He said, you know, I've never gone once since, since kindergarten. I've never been in one school for an entire year. He says, can you do me a favor? He wasn't even sure if he was going to come to my youth group. He goes, but can you do me a favor and pray that I'll be able to spend my freshman here year in Fallbrook? I said, deal. And he did. As a matter of fact, he spent all four years in Fallbrook. God really blessed him. One of his passions was journalism. And it was interesting to me that the way he could talk politics, it was like it was as though you were speaking to an adult who had had very clear, well-thought-out political views. I'm not sure those people exist anymore, but that's another story. And so finally, one summer, he came to me and he goes, Danny, I'm going to be the editor of the Tomahawk. So Fallbrook... Their mascot is the Warriors, and so their newspaper is the Tomahawk. And he was so excited. And so he selected his team, and they met through the course of the summer. And um, they wanted to talk about the stories that they would have in the first couple of issues of the Tomahawk. And one of, his, one of the people on his team, one of his writers, says, you know, at the conclusion of last school year, this employee was terminated. I'd like to follow up on what happened, how that played out through the summer. Lucas said no. And this writer, you know, young people, young men with a lot of something. They got a lot of something. I don't know what it is, but old men don't have it no more, but young men still have it. But he said, no, you know, I'm going to challenge you on that. This is an important story. It was even in the newspaper in town. We need to follow up on it. And Lucas said, I'm not going to let you follow up on it. And he said, but why? He said, because I know that that employee that was released has a daughter. And she's going to be a freshman this year. And I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't want her to have to come to campus and, and read about what happened to her parent. I want to protect her. This became very, very heated between these young people, and 
when Lucas's decision stood, this other group of people on his team started publishing an underground newspaper, an underground newspaper off campus. And everybody who wrote for this paper, which everybody knew was a part of this team, a part of the group, they began to not only attack Lucas, but they also attacked those who had remained faithful to him. Lucas said, hey, Danny, can you, can you go with me to the, see the principal? You can come with my dad. And so I remember we came into the principal's office. We explained what was happening. The principal was well, well aware of what was going on. The principal said, you know, this is being published and handed, distributed off campus. There's nothing we can do. And I remember Lucas standing up and saying, but they're saying horrible things about innocent people. And I mean, it's the people that were on his team. And it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And I remember watching this man, young man from a distance and just seeing that the adversity and the way he handled it with such character and godliness. A couple of years later, Lucas returned from school and we would hang out and he called me one night and he goes, hey, I was down at the coffee shop in town. He goes, I gathered my computer and my books and I was getting ready to head home. And he goes, you'll never believe it. He says, Danny, as I came to the door to leave, the young man who was responsible for the underground newspaper was coming in. And he said, I felt all of that emotion arise, all of that pain and hurt come up. But the only thing that got me was that as soon as he saw my face, he began to weep. And he said, Lucas, I am so sorry. Obviously, this is a couple of years later. He had grown up a little bit. He goes, I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? I wronged you for what I did. Sometimes our prayers aren't answered in the midst of adversity. But God will vindicate us either in this lifetime, listen, or in eternity. You will be vindicated if you have been wronged. And Hannah could tell you that. Secondly, Hannah's security in the Lord, verses 3 through 8. She says, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. Listen to this last part. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him our actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, verse 4, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has bore seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up, reference to resurrection. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. I don't know what your experience is, but for those who've watched or walked away from a HR meeting or a court proceeding wondering what in the world just happened to me, or maybe 
being at a family gathering to settle in a state of a loved one, and you sit there wondering, who are these people when you've known them your entire life? Hannah's words in verse 3 are for you. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions our way. It seems sometimes as though no one is thinking clearly. It seems the way they're treating individuals like there's no justice. But Hannah says, now wait a minute. You're not seeing the whole picture. I'm here to tell you, in my interaction with God, he is the one who sifts through the motives of individuals. You pray and you wait, and he will vindicate you. He will judge rightly. Hannah's being barren made her vulnerable to being bullied by her rival, her husband's second wife. But verse 3 reminds us that God knows and he will act. And one day he will silence the proud. How so? God will frustrate those who trust in human power. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, things smashed, disintegrated. But the feeble bind on strength. I want you to see in the valley of Elas, seasoned warrior, a massive man coming out and tormenting the people of God. I want you to hear him challenging Israel's army. I want you to see Israel's army hiding behind, hiding behind barricades. And I want you to hear them on a daily basis. He would come and he would mock the people of Israel, but oh, it's worse than that. He would mock the God of Israel. See that in your mind. See to a youth, an adolescent, step over, step over and move in the giant's direction. And hear his reply. In 1 Samuel 17, David says, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Oh, and there's more. I don't have time to read it tonight. There's more that he has to say to Goliath. God shatters the things the proud trust in. But he gives strength to the feeble or those who will acknowledge their weakness and humility. Secondly, God will frustrate those who trust in human resources or abilities. Verse 5, those who are full, those who are satisfied have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. And Hannah reminds us that our source of provision is God, not man. In Psalm 37, 25, David would write, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. God provides. Still verse 5. And this would be close to home for Hannah when she says, The barren have borne seven or had seven children, but she who has many children is forlorn. God's giving Hannah a son brought a sense of fulfillment to her life. Seven seven children speaks of God's complete or total blessing. The idea of being forlorn simply means that regardless of having plenty, life's uncertainty 
leaves one feeling vulnerable to loss. Then lastly, God will frustrate those who trust in human plans or strategies. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol or the place of the dead and raises up. I want you to think of God's perfect justice here. He alone deals with man according to his, listen, his perfect knowledge. You and I don't have perfect knowledge. We may have some life experience. We may have some God-imparted wisdom. But none of us in this room, none of us who have ever walked on planet Earth have the perfect knowledge or understanding that God does. And so God rules over all things supremely with his knowledge. This means that you and I approach all life and all decisions with a level of humility. And then Hannah makes this reference to the resurrection when she says that God alone raises up. Her perception is impressive. Between the month of November and the first two weeks of December, I participated in six memorial services. Not all of them, but some of them would would wind up in the cemetery. And I remember there being with my Bible and the family gathering around. And the cemetery plot being here before us, thinking, thinking, this isn't the end. This isn't where the story ends. This isn't the conclusion. For you see, there's coming a day when Jesus Christ will return. And when he returns, the grave must yield the saint. This isn't the end. Yes, here we weep, and yes, here we remember. But we also remember that the same God who rose from the dead has promised you and I that he who believes in me, that's what he told Martha, that he who believes in me, although he will die, he will never, he will experience the resurrection. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Listen. Hannah says, you are the one who raises the dead from the grave. Verse 7 is the insight of a woman who had been poor or low in her estate excuse me, for being childless. I want you to think of cultural values of her day. I want for you to stop and to step into her story for a moment. In an agrarian society, children, lots and lots of children were the hope of any family. In a patriarchal system, sons were especially valued. Hannah had been made rich and exalted by only one person, and that was God. Verse 8 continues with the idea that when one trusts that there is, verse 2, no, there is none holy like the Lord, that rescue is possible. That when you and I believe that there is no one else like our rock, there is no one else like our God, then hope is possible in any situation. For she says, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Some might think, but Danny, what about when? I like Hannah pray. 
and nothing happens. What about when I pray, I pour out my heart, I do so over a season, over many, many years. What about then? I believe that's a fair question. I believe that's an honest question. But I want you to hear me tonight that it isn't that our prayer is broken or insufficient. It isn't that our God doesn't care or that he doesn't hear. It's that he meets with us in our disappointment and that he weeps with us in our pain. Listen to the balance of verse 8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. In the tough times, God remains in complete control. And he reminds us that this life is not all there is. And he reminds us that we live in the shadow of eternity. He promises us one day that he will wipe away our tears. We live in anticipation of this new day. We may not have the final word regarding our prayers on this side of eternity, but one way we do, we will. Lastly, Hannah's trust in the Lord, verses 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I know that at times it appears, at times that it seems as though evil has the upper hand. That God may even, in your mind, be at times passive. But that's not true. You see, the story of redemption still is unfolding even tonight in your life and in my life. God is incredibly patient, and his plan is right on time. And in the midst, in the midst of our waiting and anticipation, he sa- she says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. That is, he will watch your step. He will watch each and every step. He will supervise. And then verse 10 speaks of certain judgment. This is a source of hope to those who suffer injustice. Jesus will come and judge rightly. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces, she says, and against them he will thunder. That's judgment in heaven. And lastly, Hannah's prayer becomes prophetic with a reference to a future king, a future hope. When she says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn. Remember, that's a symbol of strength the strength of his anointed. She speaks of a ruler whose kingdom will engulf the world. It's a future kingdom. God will, through the lineage of, or family of David, raise up his anointed one. This is the first time that the word anointed or Messiah is used in the Old Testament. And we are told that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, meaning that his judgment will be swift and sure. So, Hannah's prayer reminds us tonight to pray, but to also worship. Her giving of her son Samuel to the Lord's service teaches us to hold on to others with an open hand. Remember, nothing is really ours 
We are stewards of what he has given to us. And lastly, this world is not all there is. Eternity, my friends, is just around the corner. Let's pray, and then we will conclude with worship. So, Heavenly Father, tonight, we glean, we learn, we understand from a sister who lived many, many years ago, and yet her life experience for many in this room and who are listening Our lives are parallel, and she speaks to us, and she reminds us to pray for sure, but to also worship. I pray that you will bless those who are here tonight as they leave, that you especially bless the moms amongst us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.